0: Good evening, I'm Clarence Boone and welcome to this edition of Bringing On, broadcasting from WFHB Radio Station located in Bloomington, Indiana, for a multiple award-winning show. Now in our 15th year as Indiana's only weekly community radio show, committed to exploring the people, issues, and events impacting African Americans. And also, as this is Black History Month, the citywide theme is Black and Blooming, this year's annual state of the Bloomington black community took place on February the 4th in the City Hall Council Chambers. This event featured a coalition of presenters from organizations focusing on the black community. Our guests this evening who reported out were bringing on assistant producer and commissioner with the Bloomington Housing Authority, William Hosea, familiar voice uh, with bringing on. He addressed black owned businesses. Dr. Craig Greg Carter, clinical assistant professor in the Department of Science of Nursing Care at IU School of Nursing Bloomington addressed or had a surrogate address black male health and Dr. Tanisha Riley postdoctoral scholar at the IU Center for Research on Race and Ethnicity in Society addressed black youth their mental health issues Commissioner Hosea Dr. Carter and Dr. Riley welcome to bring it on Thank you very much. Thank you very much. And uh, each of you will take about an hour to talk about <laughs> your, no, I, I just love the expression on your faces when I said that. Condense. Right. Uh, so, yeah, condense. So, so to do this, I, I felt best that uh, we sort of go in the order that information um, was provided at the, uh, the State of the Black Community. And I must say on the, on the front end, I really appreciate this annual event. Uh, it, it's sort of a snapshot of what's going on in the community. also provides uh, those who are interested in our community or want to learn more to come out and, and to sort of get uh, from various facets a report card, if you will, on how the black community is faring. And I will say that uh, uh, some of the topic matter tonight um, may, may not be what is commonly talked about around the kitchen table or whatever, but... Um, Uh, We're all adults here, and uh, this is important information for our community, and it needs to be talked about. Uh, We sort of flipped the coin. Well, I made a call, and um, William Hosea, will start off first. He he gave a presentation on the state, the health, the well-being of black-owned businesses in Bloomington. Some of you are thinking, we have black-owned businesses in Bloomington? Well, William, with that, why don't you sort of Give us sort of a
2: summary of what you talked about, and then we'll, we'll dive in uh, for some questions. Well, some of the more important points that uh, I talked about was the, the origin of black-owned businesses going all the way back to a period after Reconstruction. Um, and black-owned businesses were booming, especially into the 1890s, because Jim Crow-era laws kind of forced black people to, to concentrate into urban areas, And so following that migration, you had uh, thousands and thousands of businesses that were thriving across the country because at that time, you know, we were forced to rely on each other and to do business with each other. So contrary to what you would think, the Jim Crow era segregation was detrimental to black owned businesses, that that wasn't exactly the case. And then uh, we got into, you know, fast forward, talked about some of the challenges that black-owned businesses face, and I explained how it tends to go in a cycle, uh, starting off with uh, challenges like black-owned businesses are more likely to be turned down for loans, uh, less likely to have access to capital, uh, serving populations uh, with limited financial resources going on to leading to lower empl- lower employment and profits. And in fact, black owned businesses have a nationwide have a forty percent negative profit rate compared to white owned businesses, and if you have a problem generating profits and and lower sales, then that affects your survival rate, which leads to higher bankruptcy rates and then if there's a higher bankruptcy rate, uh, then the cycle tends to start all over again, and you have you're less likely to have access to capital now. And so, you know, I kind of threw up a graph that demonstrated that, that cycle, But and I also wanted to emphasize that does not mean that everybody gets caught into that cycle and cannot navigate their way out of it. That's that's not exactly the case, um, obviously, because we have several successful uh, black-owned businesses, but not at the rates that they were back then. So what we did in Bloomington, working with a good friend of mine, Dr. Stephanie Power Carter, and uh, Aaron Predmore in the Chamber of Commerce, We commissioned a survey, and we reached out to find as many black-owned businesses as we could in Bloomington. And I have to say, I know we did not find all of them, but the numbers that we did come up with were 42 businesses owned and operated uh, in the Bloomington area with 60-plus employees. They had annual revenues of $2,567,000, $2,567,000, um, a cumulative total of 247 years in business. Now, out of that 42 businesses, we found that a, almost 75 percent of them were home-based businesses, 31 of them. So that leaves 11 brick-and-mortar establishments. And, uh, and then we presented a, a list of all the businesses that we found. Um, to the audience and we printed it off made it available. And that is a working list. We're constantly uh, upgrading that list. So moving forward, we intend to continue working with the Chamber of Commerce to add businesses as we come in contact with them and keep that list updated. And at some point later on this year, we're going to publish a black business directory from the Bloomington area. Thank you for that synopsis, and, and one thing, as I sat there
0: and listened on the 4th, I was really impressed that uh, there were 42 businesses, if someone were to ask me to name them off. Uh, I could not, and I was just encouraged by that. Now, did that also take into account uh, black professionals who uh, function sort of like uh, independent contractors in and, and their various uh, places of employment? Yes, Absolutely. And also, say medical per- personnel and um, attorneys and the like
2: well let me th- we didn 't exclude anybody if you okay. came to us and said you 're a business owner, okay. you know that was good enough for us
0: and and the the, the way by which you gathered the data was by vibrant call survey so if if someone did not return a survey, then of course you couldn 't extrapolate right. information from right. from anything so but that that to me, is encouraging. You did talk about the challenges. Uh, one that really jumped out was getting operating capital to continue to, to uh, stay in business. and i would I would think that um, uh, black- owned businesses that showed uh, longevity and resilience uh, yeah. would, in a lot of ways, make a good, safe um, customer for a bank or lending institution. Uh, One, because you would think that the clientele would be very faithful uh, to that business. Now, arguments can be made that, well, is that across the board or is that just a black community? I would hasten to say that that would be the entire community, but they they do face uh, hurdles and roadblocks and getting funding, and you talked a little bit about that. Are there other reasons why getting capital is so hard uh, is capital staying with the business or do they have to turn right around and pay for all well
2: of when when expenses, you think or? about um well let me back up a little bit i also mentioned that night that black-owned businesses are less likely to be intergenerational mm-hmm. we
1: mm-hmm.
2: as a, a group we tend we don't tend to pass down our businesses to the next generation uh, right. as much as as other groups do and along with that um if you don't pass down that business in a, a lot of legacy knowledge and experience uh... gets lost also you know how to start a business how to run that business how to grow that business and so that's probably uh... uh going back to you know some of the discrimination and racism that existed uh... back then look at black-owned family farms how mm-hmm. uh, they would just uh... uh outright denied uh, right. loans because their their information was never submitted and I was reading an article last week you know uh, talking about how the the middle class was built after the World War GIs coming home and they had this massive G.I. loan program and veterans were able to go to college they were able to buy homes and guess what the overwhelming majority of black veterans were denied that opportunity so that was uh, another missed opportunity for wealth and businesses to be passed down. And, and now we're learning more
0: about the discriminatory practices of the FHA and other programs right, that were, right. were started to sort of give people a leg up and to create communities. And guess what? A lot of us were denied access. And so the, levy, uh, the playing, uh, playing field was not level from the beginning. It um, never has been. It never has been. And 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 that and that's the frustrating thing because to get started in business, you have to have capital to get started. Right. You could have a wonderful idea. Uh, you can do creative things like get uh, partners to back what you're doing, uh, which is the route that a lot of people take. But you, you need substantial capital, say if you want to rent a place or maybe not buy a place initially, but rent a place at least to do your business or if you're going to work from home. Uh, but then there are some hurdles that you have to jump through, even if you want to do a home-based business. Um, but I was encouraged, though, because more and more people are thinking of starting their own business. And if if they Google, if they go online and do the research, there are resources out there. And did you, by chance,
2: run across any of the resources that are available for those that want to do a startup? Bloomington Greater Chamber of Commerce has been very proactive in reaching out to local black owned businesses to uh, let them know and make available the resources uh, that they have to offer mm-hmm. to help them uh, grow the business. Now, the Chamber of Commerce does have an annual membership fee, but they still have resources that, that are free and open to anyone who wants to come down and and, and take advantage of it. You know, and, and then maybe later on, as you grow your business, then you can move into a paid membership
0: and i think it's also important you you probably didn't have enough time to get into this but as they accumulate wealth put it back into the community put significant amounts back into the community to help support the community start initiatives that will help that next generation like you said intergenerational at some point a generation needs to make the sacrifice for the next generation and for those around them to Mm -hmm. help pull them along we see it in other ethnicities if you go to some businesses in town you see, uh, some ethnicities have learned that concept, and they successfully Im- uh, implement it. Now, you know, that would be great if, if even a coalition of black-owned businesses could come together, and maybe that may be in the works in the future, but uh,
2: was there any evidence of that going on that you discovered? Well, you can look at some of the business owners that you know here in Bloomington. The first person that comes to mind is Don Griffin, mm-hmm. you know successful realtor and uh, business owner, owner here and he puts a lot back into the community. Right, and has
0: been active in the community yeah, on various fronts
2: and um, you know,
0: it, and that is important that I think that if you're given a platform, if you're, if you're uh, provided uh, more than just a modicum of success, then it's important that you turn right around and help that next generation go right. forward or, ne- or that next uh, maybe struggling enterprise that's out there that you know is needed, maybe counsel them. Uh, you know, take it upon yourself to provide some business uh, counsel to someone. Well, I, I was impressed, and this is now, what year is this for uh, these type of reports? This is the third year. The third year. Yeah. Do you feel progress is being made? In what regard? Um, the number of businesses in Bloomington since you first started reporting out, and I think you handled the black businesses each I did. year.
2: Well, this is only the first year that we've looked at black-owned businesses. Okay. And so maybe in the years coming, then, you know, now that we have a baseline, then we can uh, chart progress. Okay. And if um, someone's listening
0: and, and the entrepreneurial bug has bitten you, there are all types of businesses you can start. They don't have to be brick-and-mortar businesses. You can go online and do an online business. I know a lady, we've interviewed her before. We're going to get her back here. Dr. Virginia Gutherry, who mm-hmm. had a vision of, of something that's needed or enjoyed, which is popcorn. Popcorn. And gourmet she, popcorn. Gourmet popcorn. And, and she has put her talents uh, into practice and is doing phenomenally well. We're going to talk to her about that. She's agreed to come on and, and share the knowledge. Well, I um, we have about five minutes left, and I'd like to ask uh, uh, Dr. Riley or, or Dr. Carter, if you have a question or two for William, now's the time to grill, I mean, to ask that question. <laughs> Uh, and uh, since we haven't been a hot seat, it's rare that he's in this position. Normally, he's doing what I'm doing, which is asking yeah, questions. He's usually dishing it out. He's dishing it out, but now it's time to to sort of ask him a question or two.
1: Yeah. So i I have a question about the intergenerational piece yeah. <clears throat> that you mentioned, and in particular, thinking about the ability to have initial capital, the ability to make sales, and to to have income. Have you seen, or what do you see about black businesses in Bloomington that have longevity and that are able to sort of pass those things on?
2: That was an area that we did not include in our survey. Um, We did a quick four-question survey, and and that was kind of like our beta Uh, test. We didn't want to make it too long and kind of discourage people from answering, but that's something that we would definitely track moving forward you know, as we add to the survey. But uh, Bloomington's a small town, and, and we know a lot of the uh, business owners on that list. And right now, we're just not seeing where those uh, businesses had the opportunity yet mm. to transition to another generation. Mm. So I guess time will tell.
1: Yeah, yeah, that makes sense.
0: One fascinating thing, um, this was a snapshot of businesses that exist 2019, Um, but over the long haul, you know, we've just celebrated 200 years uh, in Bloomington. There have been a number of businesses that have existed, and it'll be nice (coughs) to maybe get that sort of uh, comprehensive. That's a good point. That's uh, a good point. And
2: let let me say this, and then I know you got to move on. But as a result of bringing these black business owners together, what we hope to do is uh, start a, a networking group. Of black-owned business owners, okay, and keep that going. And and um, one thing I think with
0: any business that you start is the temptation to quick, quickly access your revenue or or the funds that you're building for other things. It, it, the discipline that's needed to to just leave the revenue alone and let it grow is great. I mean, it's tempting to take whatever you've earn that first year and then maybe do the things you always dreamt of doing, but in time, in time, uh, and then setting aside, of course, getting your finances in, in, in order, having a good financial planner to work with you in your business enterprise, um, making sure that you are an LLC so that you don't take the liability hit that could possibly come your way or some other designation, not doesn't have to be LLC, but speak about that as, as we sort of
2: end well, this segment okay, out. Well, okay, I said I was gonna let you move on, but, <laughs> but here's the thing. Just in talking to the business owners that I know locally, one thing that I do see is that they are very good at, uh, intent at reinvesting in their business. Good. So given the opportunity, that seems to be the priority, is good. to reinvest in the business. You know. And uh, the
0: LLC uh, question or incorporating oneself, that did come up in the Q&A uh, as a necessity because, you know, there's liability. Uh, right. Say right. if something happens and and this is a litigious age where someone will you could slap a it lawsuit all not on you quicker than anything. So the value of doing that, can you speak
2: toward that as we close out? If your business is not listed under an LLC, and, and I have one myself, um, and you end up getting sued then it affects your personal assets and your personal wealth whereas with an llc it's limited to, to that to that uh company so you've heard it here folks if you
0: have a vision if you always envision yourself being uh, the best lemonade sales person on the block uh, and then too this is the season where girl scouts are flexing their entrepreneurial <laughs> muscle i have two entrepreneurs at home that have hit me up, my company up, uh, my friends up. <laughs> those girls are <laughs> they're brutal. <laughs> they're brutal. and They're learning valuable lessons uh, how to present, how to present your product. And, th- and that's one thing about the Girl Scouts and the Boy Scouts. And Girl Scouts are, are known, almost said notorious, but they're known for, uh, you go to Kroger or go to some grocery store and they are there. And those young ladies are presenting their product and putting the, their best face forward and, and trying to get you to support what they're all about. So, I
2: don't know about you, but I'm anxious to hear from Dr. Carter.
0: All right. Well, I want to talk a little bit more about uh, uh, the Girl Scouts, because uh, I had to give a shameless plug for our <laughs> two entrepreneurs at home. <coughs> well, we want to thank, though, William Hosea, uh, who, again, is no stranger to bring it on. Uh, but he's also, in his, in his other life, he's very active in the community. Um, he's, with the, he's a commissioner with the Bloomington Housing Authority. and we Chairman. 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 Um, give him his due props. And has come on to talk about available um, grants that are available for those who are black and minority-owned, women-owned businesses. And uh, he's very active in a lot of other things. And we'll have him back on um, to talk about that specifically in the future. But now we're going to take a music break as we transition for our next presenter. Uh, You are listening to Bring It On, and we are uh, broadcasting from the WFHB radio station located here in Bloomington, Indiana. In the background you heard the man himself herbie Han- hancock uh, with his classic hit watermelon man we we could only squeeze in about two and a half minutes of that but uh during that uh, uh interlude we heard a brilliant suggestion and that's why she's on this show from uh, dr <laughs> tanisha riley she said here we are in a city where there's a, a level one research institution right around the corner and the phenomenal Uh, community college, Ivy Tech, that's here, of course, Indiana University and Ivy Tech. Certainly, alliances could be created and support offered for our black-owned businesses. And that's something that that we promise to investigate to see if those type of partnerships or assistance is available. But a brilliant idea from our next presenter, Dr. (coughs) Tanisha Riley, who I introduced earlier as a postdoctoral scholar at the IU Center for Research on Race and Ethnicity in Society. And she addressed uh, a topic that uh, is very important, but while revealing, I sort of left thinking that we have work to do, and black youth and the <coughs> mental health challenges that they're going through. And uh, Dr. Riley, I, you had everyone riveted there as you talked about uh, some of the issues of depression, um, and just some of the <clears throat> undiagnosed things that are going on and and some of the causal factors uh, that sort of went into that, but if you can give as William did a synopsis of your presentation, and then we'll again we'll uh, talk about some more specifics
1: yeah, sure um, so I am a developmental psychologist, I generally am interested in how we learn and grow in our well-being across the lifespan. So developmental psychologists often call it from womb to tomb. Um, And I have clinical training in marriage and family therapy. So a lot of my work is focused on Black youth mental health, Black families, um, and how we can support Black youth in those ways. And so I presented a bit on what are some Causes to thinking about mental health. Um, And the first thing to sort of note is that a lot of the mental health rates coming from um, the Human Services Department and the CDC, black Americans are faring about equally when it comes to percentage of mental health um, problems. It's usually around 30 percent. It's 30 percent in Indiana as well. But the problem comes in thinking about the causes and the trajectories to that. Um, And so there's a long historical um, sort of adversity if we think about uh, racial discrimination and the impact of slavery on black Americans. Can yeah.
0: I stop you there? Mm-hmm. Is that still affecting us? Is that Does that fall in the category of post-traumatic stress? Is that a reality in the black community?
1: Right, yeah, it is a reality. Um, I figured it was, I just wanted to get that out there. <laughs> it is a reality. <laughs> Concerning whether people would call it post-traumatic stress, I'm not sure. But Mm -hmm. a lot of cultural researchers have sort of geared or are trying to gear people towards thinking about experiences of discrimination and this sort of long historical impact as racial trauma. Well,
0: and I hate to interrupt you again. I didn't do this (coughs) with William, but you're hitting on something (laughs) that has often been used, especially after 2008 that we had our black president, so therefore we didn't have any more racial discrimination and, and all the amends have been made and and absent the 40 acres and a mule. Uh, but o- President Obama's election took care of all that. Some have actually said that to my face. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs>
1: um, oof. Um, that was a lot. I, I don't have an answer for when people say that besides um, if you look around you, there are still... Um, incidences that happen maybe not directly to you uh, maybe indirectly maybe vicariously uh, through you know we've seen a lot of um, police violence Um, so things that happen through social media youth have access to that um Youth have parents who are older and Mm -hmm. have lived through other generations. And so um, one sort of part in history in which someone is elected does not erase the years of sort of racialized trauma. That can happen, um, that can occur intergenerationally. So the stories that families talk about, the way that they decide to uh, sort of talk about or develop their youth identity based on their own experiences, all of those things sort of matter. And then the second thing um, related to your comment that I talked about was the socioeconomic disparities. So there's a huge wealth gap in America. Um, and we know that blacks uh, black am- Americans have less wealth than white-, white Americans. And so then you have less resources um, to access. You have less health care access, less mental health care access, less really great schools and really great communities and all of those things sort of impact youth in a different way. They impact them um, because they're repetitive. They happen almost daily all the time um, and they also impact them because there's a lot of different racial stressors um, that are sort of weighing on them that impact their mental health as well. Yeah.
0: What, what type of uh, additional race racial stressors uh, w- would you point out?
1: So you can you can think about this About discrimination is not just something, again, that happens to you directly, Mm -hmm. um, but things that can happen to you indirectly, but also by multiple perpetrators, right? So they are in different contexts throughout their day. Um, Something may happen to them at the store. That's a different incident, a different perpetrator, a different type of stressor or trauma versus something happening to them at school or something a teacher says or versus something a peer says. All of those things and the different perpetrators have Varying effects on your identity, who you are as a Black youth, um, and then also, of course, your mental health. They tell different messages depending on when when they happen and who they come from. So yeah,
0: you um, and and I and I did inject and I didn't mean to uh, upset your your um, your flow of, of
1: <laughs> synopsis
0: uh, the synopsis, but um, it, it jumped. I mean, I knew if I didn't say it then I'd probably forget it. But we mentioned that. Some have mentioned, and I've heard it nationally mentioned. I've heard it some in casual conversation. Have said it to me that you know this this monumental moment in time in two thousand eight when Grant Park was filled and tears were flowing down people's face. I remember Jesse Jackson was crying and mm-hmm. Oprah was there, and everything. And so it's like this sort of watershed moment. We are now free because we have now. Yeah, that's that's monumental. That can mm-hmm. never be erased. But the disrespect. Heaved on him from his his well being, no, no, his very existence as a naturalized individual to being called out during the State of the Union address. Now, if anyone should be called a liar during the State of the Union, here I go. I mentioned I wasn't going to say number forty-five, but if anyone could be called out during the State of the Union address and be told, "Sir, you are a liar," definitely not number forty-four. Uh, but I, I, I regress, and let me let me come back up to this current time. Um, but the, the disrespect that people viewed, especially in the black community, toward this president has to reinforce some long-held beliefs.
1: Right, right. So even in your sort of discussion about things that people have said um, and things that you've seen, that's an indirect sort of um discriminatory act or incident against your racial identity because Mm -hmm. you may identify with president obama um and there's also been some research to suggest that when black americans do get to particular positions oftentimes they're seen as the exception um, or the right way to sort of be so on the other hand um Some folks may not be doing direct discriminatory acts, but they may have this sort of bias or perception that this is what a good black American looks like. Mm -hmm. Now, if that doesn't fit you and who you are, um, sort of do you belong and where you belong in this uh, sort of racialized America has an impact on on families and on youth and just on their identity and who they are, how they express their black identity. So, yeah, for sure.
0: There were some points made, uh, well brought out, about what our young black girls are going through as far as identity issues, um, acceptance with their peers. And you even mentioned that, I believe you mentioned that girls typically can be rather critical of each other anyway at certain age ranges or maybe... I think from age uh, 6 up to age 60, I don't know, what girls could be a little critical of each other. <laughs> Everything from looks, appearance, even such things as hair, because now there is a big move for natural hair, which mm-hmm. I applaud. And uh, before it was straighten that hair, get that relaxer, get that perm, get that, uh, was it soul glow? I mean, no, 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 uh, the jerry <clears throat> curl
2: came out. You're you thinking about Concaline.
0: Conkaline, okay. Conkaline. I heard stories, man, <laughs> patches of hair. Anyway, the effort to look a certain way um, because it fit societal norms as opposed to why, why am I not accepted in my natural state? And, and now I'm so glad that the pendulum is swinging in the other direction. But that has weighed heavily on our young black women. Mm-hmm. Can you talk about that?
1: Yeah, I can I can speak a little to that. And in, in the presentation, I also talked quite a bit about what to do or ways for mm-hmm. care and coping. Um, and aside from, you know, directly seeking services and, and getting knowledge about what type of services, one thing that we know and I've talked about on the show before is that having youth uh, develop a strong racial ethnic identity is really important to their well-being. Um, if youth are proud to be black, they're proud to be who they are, um, they fare better when it comes to things like depression, anxiety, uh, risk behaviors, academic well-being. Um, and that goes for any any sort of identity developments. One thing that I really like about adolescents is that they are trying to figure out who they are um, and where they fit into the world, and they get all these types of messages about what's important, what's not, how to dress and what to look like. Um, But in the end, if they are secure in who they are and if you are able to sort of say, yeah, you may look different or this may be different from this person, but how do you feel about it and how strong is your identity? um, That's something that (coughs) sort of protects them from some of these psychological outcomes that we see. So hair is one of them Uh, for, you know, black males, often it's, um, You know, sort of expression of behavior or who they are, um, being okay with even your physical size sometimes for an adolescent, right? You're kind of awkward, your body's awkward. Um, What do you sort of know about, you know, are you okay with how your size and how you are um, and how people may perceive you? So all of those types of perceptions and messages that they get from the world can be conflicting. Um, but one of the things that I really enjoy is thinking about how do we socialize them around their identity so that they're really strong about who they are. And no matter what someone sort of says to them, sometimes they're like, that was hurtful <laughs> and mm-hmm. stressful, right? Um, but I know who I am. I'm a strong black youth, and they sort of are able to to persist um, through trauma and through stress often. yeah,
0: I'm kind of smiling because uh, adolescence is also a time when, of course, your body is is far out racing your mind. and and you may look as if you could slam dunk a basketball, but really your your heart is playing toward yeah. playing chess or whatever yeah. and or maybe everything but sports, but yet your typecast says we need you to go out and do this and the other because you can do it because so and so on T V last Sunday did it and, and this and you're young and you're mm-hmm. trying to like you said, find yourself. How do you parents love to live vicariously through their kids anyway okay so how do you help parents navigate around placing your kids in these awkward boxes hmm. so i'm trying to get all these these uh <laughs> counseling services without paying because i can do it <laughs> on the air i see um
1: yeah that's a that's a difficult one when it comes to to body size there's sort of There's two sort of coins to that, right? So you're talking about how do we make sure not to typecast our kids into these roles that we want them to be? Mm -hmm. Um, And the answer to that is really exploration. So a lot of parents don't like to hear that because sometimes exploration can lead to risk behaviors that... We don't want them to do, but inevitably they will. Um, But it also allows them to build some autonomy and think about what it is that they like, um, explore activities that they like to do, and again, be really strong in their identity and who they are, to Mm -hmm. live sort of like for themselves. The other side of that that I've often studied is uh, more racialized, so then if you have a 13-year-old that looks 16, 17, how do you prepare them for potential biases and discrimination, right? So someone may think that they're older. They may call them a man when really they're a boy. They're they're still growing, right? Their minds are not quite there, um, even though their bodies are. Um, And so what are the messages that parents may send that are different from a 13-year-old that looks like a 16-year-old to a 13-year-old who looks like a 13-year-old? And those are important questions to sort of have uh, because we know that generally, um, if you ask uh, white Americans about uh, youth who are the same age, they will say that the black youth is taller, bigger, stronger, more culpable of crime. And so it's a double-edged sword to think about how black families are struggling through trying to raise black youth.
0: And then on the other hand, with our young black girls... Mm -hmm. that are maybe 11 or 12 but look like they're 16, 17, 18. These messages, images that they're all hit with, all youth in America are hit with these messages that to me are counter to what parents are trying to do. Mm -hmm. So how do you safeguard against labels of being hyper-sexualized and just, you know, more mature (laughs) than they actually are?
1: Yeah, Um, so there is research to suggest that for girls, that girls are seen as... um, more sexually active, more sexually experienced um, than their white counterparts who are the same age. Um, and really a lot of that intersection has to do with policy-related issues. Um, so if if there are policies in place around cultural competence for teachers, um, not sort of immediately jumping to consequences in the juvenile justice system, those types of things I think safeguard girls from their identity, right? So there are school systems where girls are written up for, for dress code, which gets them involved in the juvenile system, which then sort of repeats these instances in which they're now part of the justice system. Um, and similarly for all black youth sort of being seen by their teachers as being more disrespectful um, or being too loud, those types of subjective ideas about what it means to be in a classroom, those things also contribute to sort of the justice system pipeline. And so a lot of it is around policy and how do we get the world, teachers, or other people's perceptions to align with what it means to be an adolescent and to really sort of understand adolescence um, to its core.
0: And with a couple minutes left in this segment what does a well-adjusted black youth look like and how do we help promote that in 120 seconds
1: oh okay (laughs) um well-adjusted black youth um they know themselves well they know when to ask for help and who to ask for help from they have a support system that will allow them to get that help if they're struggling um They know to have some self-compassion and to have some hope for the future. Um, And I guess the best ways of going about that, um, again, I I guess I can't stress this enough, is that oftentimes we think that children should do as we say, and that's it. Um, But during the adolescent years, they become more aware that things are not black and white and more relative. Um, And so allowing them to sort of have conversation around, sort of their preferences. That builds their identity, but it also builds their sense of being able to talk to other people. We want them to grow and be autonomous and to be in healthy relationships where they can go and talk to people who are not just us, um, where they can be outside of just listening to instructions that we give them. You
2: know, listening to Dr. Raleigh describe a well-adjusted black youth, I'm thinking, no wonder I was so screwed up as, <laughs> as a kid.
0: We're still working <laughs> with that <it here. laughs> Um, but, you know, I, I appreciate that because um, I was encouraged by a lot of the things you said at that, but but some of the stark statistics, because um, I think in, in this community of Bloomington, yeah, the cultural competence training yeah. could really be a great benefit. In Indianapolis, um, I can't necessarily say that as quick because they have black teachers and I don't know if it's th- they're not getting supported or if the classes are just too large or a whole host of reasons. Uh, maybe we'll reserve that for another show. But I am aware that, number one, growing up is hard.
1: Mm-hmm. It was
0: hard for us, and it's maybe doubly hard now because of the, 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 the factors that they have to work through and the, in the um, voices and all the things that they're up against. But it's possible. It's possible. Yeah. In a single household, it's possible. Yes, uh, with a grandmother raising children, it's possible. It's possible. So um, thank you, and, and we're going to have you on again because this is uh, uh, William's you, here all the time. So we're going to talk about parenting. housing and, and businesses all the time. But this topic it's important. We need we need to have an ongoing conversation. Um, well, we're going to have finish this in the Green
3: Room. In the Green Room, and right. and,
0: and two uh, because I'm a. Parent with with two kids and adolescents, I need to get some some good advice. So, with that, we're going to take another music break as we segue. And before we start our final conversation, you are listening to Bring It On. We are broadcasting from the WFHB radio station located here in Bloomington, Indiana. In the background, Timmy Thomas from back in the day, and um, actually a native of Evansville, Indiana. So, that of course was, I wouldn't say that was his only hit, but maybe one of three (laughs) that he came out with. You know, we we try to support the one hit wonders here on uh, uh, Bring It On, but. uh, That's always been a a passionate song of mine, and about three years ago I heard it on XM, and I said, hey, you know, this will live again somewhere. (laughs) So anyway, Timmy Thomas singing Why Can't We Live Together, and you heard a snippet of that. And and during one of our upcoming shows, you'll hear the entire selection. Um, We have heard about our black-owned businesses. We have heard about our youth and the struggles they have oftentimes with just— coping with some mental stressors and just mental conditions. And uh, we now turn to Dr. Greg Carter, who's a clinical assistant professor in the Department of Science of Nursing Care at IU School of Nursing here in Bloomington, uh, who's going to talk a little bit more about black male health, but again, we talked about some stark facts and figures, and he's going to talk about some some sensitive issues, but uh, they need to be discussed. And Dr. Carter, thank you for coming on and bringing on tonight.
3: Uh, thank you for inviting me. I'm really happy to be here.
0: And again, if you could provide a synopsis as uh, William and Tanisha has, have provided.
3: Oh Absolutely. Well, first I have to say, uh, Nichelle, who is my research partner in this, was the one who presented. So I won't, probably won't be able to do a full recap of what she did. Um, but really what we're looking at and what started this was a partnership with the Indiana Minority Health Coalition. And we're really starting to be concerned um, as public health providers about the, the recent incidents of HIV and minority populations. Um, th- there's been some pretty significant advances in prevention uh, recently, and we'll get more into that in a second. But the good news is we've seen a lot of, uh, a lot of areas, we've seen the new cases of HIV, and new diagnoses decline mm-hmm. significantly. In mm-hmm. um, some populations they've remained stable. However, in young adult uh, black men, they have gone up significantly, and we've seen this in Latino uh, men as well, but it's gone up uh, more dramatically among men, uh, black men. And so that really started us really wanting to, to explore what's the, what's the issue with the barrier to uptake of these HIV, HIV prevention Uh, methods. And specifically, I'm talking about pre-exposure prophylaxis or PrEP, as people will see on the commercial. Uh, There's a new one that was just approved, I believe, in October of 2019. It's called Descovy. So there are two medications out. The the great news about that for individuals who uh, might not have heard of it is that it prevents the acquisition of HIV by greater than 90%. And in some studies we're seeing up to 99%. So it's significant, it's a, it's a, it's a huge step forward. But again, kind of what we're seeing uh, nationwide is we're not really seeing, being able to move that needle forward among black men. Um, and I, I believe one of the statistics that Nichelle discussed um, during her report was what the CDC released last summer is when they said without intervention, one in two black MSM or men who have sex with other men will develop HIV, will contract HIV in their lifetime, which is, it's just overwhelming for me to think about that. Um, so again, we, we have the tools, but we're really looking at access and representation and how you know, co- certain cultures are going to adapt that. I really think it kind of comes down to some of those things.
0: And again, these things aren't talked about, and I um, know that one reason why perhaps the numbers are just beginning to really multiply is there are, there's not stark open conversation. Right. And uh, there may be denial and there may be uh, just ignorance as to, uh, you know, the prevention that's available. One thing, a question was asked after the presentation. Yes, those numbers are startling mm-hmm. and they're rather frightening. But then you look at the impact on black women um, because... It may be shared partners or not shared partners, but multiple partners mm-hmm. of, of which some are women. And then now, is there also an increase in the number of women, black women, that are that are HIV positive?
3: Yeah. Um, yes, I actually um, pulled up. And, and one of the sites that I uh, give to my students, so we really monitor the CDC sites because we want to you know, try to get the numbers as current as possible, and of course, the World Health Organization and those things. But when we're looking at the most recent numbers that we were able to access from 2018, um, in 2018, there were 37,832 new HIV diagnoses in the United States. 42% of those were among adult and adolescent Black and African Americans. Um, 31% of that was among Black uh, African American men, and 11% were among Black and African American women. Hmm. So we are seeing the numbers um, that Black women are, of course, are being adversely impacted, hmm. not as significantly as as men. But of course, we're really looking at um, what I believe is stigma. We've really looked at, I've spent a lot of my research looking at stigma um, among certain populations. And if
0: you can define that, perhaps some of our listeners may not know what that sure. concept is. Stigma? Yes.
3: Um, it's really maybe a sense of othering um, where, where you aren't necessarily, you're afraid to uh, where you don't fit into a group. And I think that really when we're thinking about maybe a cultural script, like you're supposed to act a certain way or behave a certain way or look a certain way, as we were talking about earlier, and a stigma might be as simple as that, or it might be someone who is HIV positive and you're assuming that that person's going to give you HIV just because of, you know, dis- you know the air you breathe, which actually, you know, I heard that last year. Someone was afraid of that. And so we're thinking about stigma taking many different forms. But again, a lot of it, in, in my opinion, is really uh, coming out of cultural beliefs.
0: Now, um, one of the things uh, that was discussed was in the city of Bloomington, there mm. were stats that were pulled together. I think yes. there was a, a survey that was administered. Yes. And and numbers were given. Now, do they mirror what the CDC was saying? But if you can maybe go through that and share. Sure.
3: Um, and again, that the, the study that, that we did, uh, where we partnered with IMHC and Michelle was working, and of course, uh, Larry Wilson, who was an amazing uh, nursing student who graduated, so we were really sad to see him go. But we really wanted to see what this looked like in Indiana. And something I was thinking about listening to uh, the previous two conversations is this sense that I think is a false sense of security where people believe that Bloomington is somehow isolated. Um, I think in some ways it's true, but I think uh, like I mentioned I think it's a false sense of security. I think that we don't do a great job uh, of really having a diverse student population here, and I mean that at the on the university side and the the primary high school side and I see that in my students who are minorities who are sitting in in the classrooms of all white students and them coming in and, and thinking that you know and again i 'm I won't say her name, of course, I would never do that. But when we were able to have a, an open conversation, she was saying, you know, I'm sitting here in a room with a, with a bunch of people who don't look or sound like me. And I start questioning, should I be here or am I good enough to be here? And I think it's really important for the white students to hear that because I, I couldn't imagine that they would be assuming that's what she would be thinking. Mm-hmm. But I think it really is where you really start having the discussion. And so that, this study really was kind of a part of those things that we talked about. So one of the things we looked at was adverse childhood experiences or ACEs, which are basically um, where it might be things you've experienced before you're 18 years of age. So it could be abuse. It could be alcoholism. It could be um, sexual uh, issues that or molestation when before the age of 18. We're seeing that uh, white... Individuals, Caucasians, are have typically reporting higher Aces, but really what we're seeing that in Bloomington were that Black men were reporting Aces higher than the national average. And then when we were looking at the Black MSM that that uh, participated in the study, they were uh, significantly more likely to report four or more Aces, uh, which is the adverse childhood experiences. So among the the Black MSM that. Uh, took the survey, 37.5% of them experienced four or more ACEs
0: out of a scale of 10. Now, four or more ACEs, uh, Mm -hmm. again, what could they be? Just
3: Um, You could have actually been abused. You Mm -hmm. could have witnessed abuse. Um, You could have had an addict uh, for a a parent, Um, incarceration, uh, those kinds of things.
0: Um, what do we do? Because I think at that point when Michelle was reporting out, yeah. you could hear a pin drop and people were riveted in their seats. And yeah. now in our minds, we're thinking, okay, we're in a community where we're progressive minded. We like to fix things. So mm-hmm. what do we
3: do? Well, I mean, I think those are, those are really great questions. I think that it's complicated questions mm-hmm. because in my personal opinion, I believe it kind of comes down to um, creating a new system. I think we need to rebuild trust in our medical systems uh, among individuals, uh, minority individuals specifically, who are adversely impacted by uh, these things, so they're actually able to seek health care. I think we are fortunate, and if Nancy or Shelly from Volunteers of Medicine are listening, um, forgive me because I cannot remember what their, their federally qualified health center the name changed. But I think we have resources here where we're seeing some protective factors for minority individuals who might not have insurance. Um, but outside of that, we need to be able to get the message out to say, it is safe to have these conversations. I I am also kind of disappointed when people talk about ACEs, like. You know after the person's eighteen, I think we need to do a better job of catching those things before when they're children when before they're eighteen, of course, so as they're experiencing them to figure out how do we intervene and how do we prevent this from happening, and maybe how do we link them into counseling? Maybe it's a family thing right
0: yeah, um Michelle reported out uh, that there were instances where the preventative um, um medication was talked about and even said, look, you can get this to Mm -hmm. prevent possible contraction or whatever. Mm -hmm. But then there was this resistance to even wanting to follow through to get that which could possibly save your life.
3: Yeah, most of, of the men surveyed in Bloomington were not willing to accept PrEP. Um, whether or not at that point again it was a pilot study so we need to explore that a little bit more mm. but whether or not they actually perceived themselves at risk is a different question mm-hmm. but even with the vignette explaining what PrEP was then most of them were not willing to uh, take it or have a discussion with that and again that comes down to stigma because we're we're afraid to have those conversations and if someone if a, if a man is happens to be in a, a sexual relationship with another man maybe he's married again we've uh had to do some screening on several individuals in that situation and and you have to think about what where the insurance goes and is the wife or girlfriend going to be able to see that billing or is it going to be private so there's a lot of factors that are going into place why people might not seek screening or might accept it and if it's a medication you're taking once a day how, how are you going to make that work if you're living with someone
0: and then a final question I had, uh, you alluded to it several times, the, the um, question of having adequate insurance mm. to cover a lot of things. I mean, we're now in a time when this is one of the hot political mm. talking points that should be talked about more on, on uh, in the uh, presidential campaign. But, mm. you know, yeah, well, I know we need to, <laughs> well, let me stop the second time. <laughs> I'm trying, I'm trying. Uh, <laughs> I know someone needs to be retired, but uh, there are other issues, too. Um, insurance is yeah. a premium thing because yeah. you may get uh, with the affordable care act you may get insurance but what does it really cover yeah and you mentioned or you alluded to agencies in town that may be able to help yes. with not just this but with other things can you talk about that with the Ooh, uh, 30 seconds we have left. Yeah,
3: well, uh, <laughs> I don't even know where to start with that. Um, I think it really is kind of a rebuilding to think about how we're, how we're granting access, right. you know, where those access points are, and if individuals feel comfortable going into them. And I hopefully, Nichelle was able to have time to talk about you know, having African American providers, mm-hmm. again, because people want to go to someone who they think is going to relate to them. Right. I think having more female Providers, nurses, and physicians Mm -hmm. would be huge in making a step forward because you have a trust because someone gets you.
0: And with that, unfortunately, um, we we have come to the end. We want Mm -hmm. to thank tonight's guests who reported out at the state of the black community forum held on february the 4th and of course uh, the surrogate michelle uh, Nich- who and her last name again i'm sorry she whitney. didn't kill me michelle whitney i know i know her last name one she of, reported out
3: and one of the most incredible people you'll ever meet
0: i think, I think we made up for that okay yeah. there were they were bringing on assistant producer and commissioner with the bloomington health authority william Hosea, who addressed black owned businesses dr greg carter who's here tonight, Clinical Assistant Professor in the Department of Science and Nursing Care at IU, School of Nursing in Bloomington, who addressed black male health, and Dr. Tanisha Riley, Postdoctoral Scholar at the IU Center for Research on Race and Ethnicity in Society, who addressed black youth and mental health. And bringing on, um, we are proud to have these individuals on the night, and of course, we'll try to have you on again in the future. Now, our show is produced by yours truly, who has ran over its time, Clarence Boone, (laughs) With help from WFHB's News Department Director, Cade Young, and tonight's board engineer is Chantal Lafontaine. Our original theme music was created by Jamel Effium, with additional background tracks by David Baker. And for WFHB, I'm Clarence Boone. Tune in next Monday, February the 24th at 6 p.m. for another exciting edition of Bring It On, right here on your community radio station, WFHB. Now the music.